0: Honestly, if I'm Wiggins and I drop 40 in in TD uh, Garden, I call an Uber, like right after they give the trophy. And when the commissioner like looks to give me the MVP and I'm not there, he'll give it to Steph instead and all will be well.
1: (laughs) If Andrew Wiggins scores a hundred points in game seven, you have to still give it to Steph Curry. Welcome to TakeLine. We've got another great show lined up for you. As uh, game six of the NBA Finals in Boston Looms. The Golden State Warriors up 3-2 after their 10-point victory back in the Bay Area. To help us pack everything going on with the Celtics and the Warriors, my former colleague Dan Devine of The Ringer will join us. We will also be joined by the incredibly smart Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal, who's gonna help us uh, figure out what's going on with Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund-backed Golf League Live, which has thrown uh, the entire golf ecosystem into a tizzy and and driven my mom actually insane. But first, I wanna chop it up with super producers, Zuri and Ryan, to talk about uh, Game 5, Welcome to Take Line. Uh, It is moments after game, the pivotal game five. Boston Celtics have fallen to the resurgent Golden State Warriors, one hundred four to ninety four. Steph Curry, uh, absolutely ice cold in the game, zero for nine from three, seven to twenty two from the field. Doesn't matter. Golden State wins by ten. Jason Tatum started. Absolutely dead cold. Couldn't throw the ball into the ocean. Couldn't throw the ball outside of a door. Couldn't do anything. Uh, then came on, but in the end, uh, it's that old. It's that turnover number. You've heard the stat by now. When the when the Celtics uh, notch less than, I think it's 16 turnovers. They're 13 and two, and they do uh, more than that. Uh, that's when they lose, and they lost tonight. With a team total of 18 turnovers, uh, and once again, that was the that was the Achilles' heel for the Boston Celtics. To help me unpack this, Zuri and Ryan, Zuri and Ryan, when Jason Tatum started uh, 0, for, 0 for 12, uh, and he's minus 13 in the game. Do we now? He did end with 27 points. You know, shot 50 percent from. Uh, From the field 10 rebounds did have four turnovers but at what point we were talking earlier in the in the playoffs that jason tatum has taken the lead many were saying this many were noticing that i wasn't saying it because i don't like the celtics but i was acknowledging it inside deep inside at what point do we start wondering is is this moment a little too big for tatum
2: no i mean He's 24 years old. I don't know what you're doing at 24. I didn't have all my stuff together. Maybe at 26, at 28, if he does this again, then we can come down hard on him. And maybe there's also a mulligan for your first finals.
0: That, that was going to be my point. The, the the Tatum supporters, the Boston Celtics faithful, you know, our, our dear editor, Spence, who's in his feelings right now, they all believe that, or will tell you, that even if the Celtics lose this series... This was their first go at it. You know, you, you would love to just hit your first finals and be amazing like the Spurs or the Warriors. But, you know, for most people that are for most teams, it's not the way it works. You have to lose before you win. LeBron's heat loss before they won. Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's still a lot of space uh, for Jason Tatum's potential and for his supporters to defend him. I, I do think he had a lot of good moments in this postseason. And, you know, I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment and say that, you know, a bad game six or bad game seven, bad game five can undo all of that. Let me let me not assume bad games on him. He's had he's had a couple. He's been inconsistent in these finals, but the finals are a big platform. He's been really, really good to get the Celtics to this point, but maybe he's going to take lessons away from this experience that will make him even more dangerous in the future. As you say, Zerri, he's only 24 years old.
2: Well, I called it. I was, I was talking with some friends before game four, and I just thought that, he was gonna blow it that game. I, I think that he's kind of a front runner. I think the Celtics team is kind of a front running team. I think that we were talking in pre-pro about what they're lacking. I think they need a ball handler to just kind of set things up on offense. I don't think Marcus Smart, I mean, we know he's not that type of player. Um, but at the same time, as we're discussing this, it sounds like we're making excuses for Jason Tatum, you know, amidst calling him, you know, the next, uh, Up and player in the league, and it's like, well, if he is that, then maybe.
0: He- Look, we, we were talking about him dominating KD on both sides. We talked about him out helping the Celtics outlast the Superman Giannis. He got past Jimmy's defense, but Andrew Wiggins is eating his lunch, man.
1: Um I think you know, Zuri. I think you're onto something about the, with the with the Celtics kind of being a front-running team. Obviously, like a defensive juggernaut, but they started the season shaky. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they don't have a, you know, their, their best natural playmaker is Marcus smart who can be a little wild. He's part of the reason that they are a team that makes bad decisions on offense. Um, Marcus smart is a big part of that, although he did rein it in and that was a large part of their success, but they're a team. Once they kind of flipped the switch in January, they were either blowing teams out, or they were losing like there was whenever they have to whenever it's close or they have to come back that requires them to make as many high efficiency good quality decisions and as few bad decisions as possible and they're just not a team that can do that they they just press when it's closer they're behind now it's you know jalen brown will you know will decide well, I've got to make something happen. So I'm going to drive into like two guys and that's going to be a turnover. I'm going to try and force up a shot over guys or Al Horford's like, I- I'm going to get right under the rim and then uh, I'm going to get swallowed up and I'm going to try and throw it out to one of our three point shooters or Jason Tatum will decide, like, I'm going to back you down and I'm going to take this contested too. And it just kind of like, they stop doing the things that got them there. Uh, And I think it just makes them a a a team that's tough to rely on when it's close, Um, and when it's in crunch time. And they just they just there is an X factor that the Warriors have in uh, in experience that you're really feeling right now because the, the Warriors just kind of never get rattled by the moment they never seem to uh they never seem to believe that they can they know when they're behind how they can come back like if you look at the game 1 comeback that the Celtics made it was it was really just like Al Horford was open which is what the Warriors had designed their defense to do and he just hit like every shot that was available to him is that's like not a repeatable thing the Warriors when they're behind like have lineups plays different things that they can run out there and you feel like, okay, I've seen this before. I know how they can do it. The Celtics, because they had so rarely come back or have to come back, don't really have that muscle memory yet. And I think that you're just seeing that weakness get exposed right now at the biggest moment. I think that the Celtics are the better team, like on paper. I think they're the better team from top to bottom. I just think the Warriors have that wealth of playoff experience having been here. That's the difference right now.
0: But you know, the crazy thing is is that the playoff experience that you speak of is working for the Warriors twofold because obviously you have the guys with the rings names we know but then also like the play of Wiggins and Poole these kids who are also here for the first time just like Tatum and you know same age comparable but playing like as, like, like they've been in every finals game alongside Draymond and the Splash Brothers like the the pool play where he forces that uh, offensive foul on Marcus Smart, well uh, foul, obviously he's acting, obviously he's acting, like, but like, I mean no no it's not, but he but he's taking advantage of the moment and then he comes back with the three that's you know that continues the uh, I think that made it a 10-0 run at when Golden State pulled away. It's just these moments.
1: I it's different though when you can be when you can play free, you know, the thing about pool is like, nobody's asking him to go out there and, and do his thing for like 35 minutes or so, you know, like what did he play in this game? Uh, 14 minutes. He did his damage in 14 minutes in this game. And that's the thing is he comes out here, push the pace, make the right decision. Don't get burned too much on defense and just go out there and fucking score. Like that's, what you're here to do you're not here to be the guy well it seems like you he know? thinks he's the guy
2: every time he's near basketball
1: no but they put him they put him in these very very constricted situations in which he can be the guy for a four minute five minute stretch uh whereas tatum and brown like have to carry all this weight for the entire game and i just think it's it's a different i i just think it's a different skill set you know not to it it harkens back to the bus driver, bus passenger TNT conversation. But that's kind of what it is. You know, Wiggins, um, I you know, older than uh, Brown and Tatum, um, has been around the block, but also, like, we, you know, is playing really well right now. But let's also acknowledge that he did suck <laughs> for a long time and did suck initially upon coming to the Warriors, but now is getting it and is also benefiting from the fact that there's all these other players on the court that are getting all this attention, all this spotlight, and he can thrive in that environment where there's less pressure on him. But you're right; obviously, these guys are playing great. Let's talk. Let let's let's get our predict, predictions in. So, obviously, again, it's just turnovers. Like Warriors six turnovers to the Celtics eighteen. That's the game. That was the game. Um, potentially one more game left maybe as many as two what do we think what What do we think happens it feels like at this point like listen everybody everybody who is drawing breath right now knows it's a game of turnovers for the Celtics including the Boston Celtics and Amy Yudoka and the entire team and they can't limit their turnovers so clearly considering this game and and the previous one so where do we go from here? What uh, what do we what do we think is going to happen
2: in the minutia of Game Six coming up? I think some Celtics role player is going to go off at home because they're going to be comfortable. Sam Hauser, had... let's go, Sam Hauser. <laughs> Derek White, Derek White's going to make a shot. I don't know. I think, I think, well, maybe. So I think I think Boston probably has enough energy to take it at home. Also, I mean, like I do want to talk about Robert Williams.
1: He's been he's been amazing. He's I mean, uh, uh, yeah, plus 11, the only starter in, in uh, positive plus minus He's been so important defensively, obviously.
2: Just a menace. And it seems like Golden State is like a trap door when he's when he's in the paint. Also, he just seems like he's going to be a 100 million dollar player fairly soon for like the Mavericks or like, the Magic or something like that. So I'm rooting for him. But I, it does seem like um, I don't see Golden State losing two games in a row.
0: Oh, we're right on schedule for my pre-finals prediction i had warriors in seven i'm sticking to warriors in seven
1: yeah i i also picked warriors in seven and i think it will be warriors in seven i i think that i i can see boston winning uh game six but in one of these next two games boston is going to figure out again how to how to uh how to get the ball off of the Boston Celtics to the tune of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen assists, and that will be the that will be the series, that will be the title.
0: I'll be honest with you; I think that Boston is going to show us exactly how they got here in Game Six, and I think they might even come out and give us a, a competitive first half in Game Seven. But I, I do not have any faith in their ability to execute in the fourth quarter of a Game Seven against the Golden State Warriors. I think that Golden State, just on the strength of experience, is going to. Once we get there, we're just going to see them earn the. We're going to see one of the teams earn the championship. I'd be shocked if it was Boston.
2: If if Wiggins drops forty on the road in Game Six to close out the series, would you? Okay.
0: <laughs> no, it's honestly, if I'm Wiggins and I drop forty in in TD uh, Garden, I call an Uber like right after they give the trophy. And when the commissioner like looks to give me the MVP and I'm not there, he'll give it to Steph instead and all will be well.
1: <laughs> if Andrew Wiggins scores 100 points in game seven, you have to still give it to Steph Curry. I, you actually have to do it. You can't not do it. Up next, the ringer's Dan Devine.
3: Well, uh, with the Celtics now on the brink of the ultimate disappointment that one can have in the NBA, down
1: 3-2
3: in the NBA Finals to the Golden State Warriors, uh, I decided that there would be nothing better than to have a completely unbiased conversation with one of my favorite ex-colleagues and uh, Knicks fan, Dan Devine. Dan, how are you?
4: Jason, it's pretty hard to... do this with a heavy heart over the Celtics being one win away from elimination today, but uh, I'm going to power through it. And I'm going to try to just, you know, have a a stiff upper lip about it.
3: How heavy is your heart? And what do you make of, uh, what do you make of this team, the Celtics team that arguably is the better team on paper than the team that they're getting beaten by?
4: It's almost like they're two teams, right? It's like, there's the defense, which is all all world and constant. And then there's the offense, which is like completely uh, frenetic and uh, changing constantly from one game to the next when they don't turn the ball over they don't lose and when they do they are awful they they look like they they've barely played together let alone play like a hundred games together and that's really I mean it's it's the kind of thing that you you wind up with like Marcus Smart is a point guard but he's not that kind of point guard that settles everybody down and I think you sort of see that where like Tatum's not quite there as somebody that settles everybody down. Brown is not quite there as somebody that settles everybody down. And, you know, Brown said it last night after game – or said it after game five. Like, we were kind of looking for somebody to bail us out. And when you look around, and, like, it's like the Spider-Man meme. Everybody's pointing at everybody else to do it. Uh, All of a sudden, you wind up, like, bricking 19 different possessions and losing a game that you definitely could have won.
3: You brought up something I think is important, which is the Celtics' best three guys – Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, are turnover machines. Turnovers are their very, very obvious and loud Achilles heel that everybody, including the Celtics, completely knows about. And one of the main formulations of, you know, the makeups of this team, the DNA of this team is when everything breaks down, Jason Tatum is the guy who bails us out. You our Kobe in that sense. Um, but I think what we're seeing is, you know, the strengths of the team are also baked into the uh the, the weaknesses of the team. You know, like is it possible that they can improve their turnover problem, which absolutely needs to be solved, without either adding to or taking away from this team. For instance, Marcus Smart for Tyus Jones or something like that. Like this is just me talking about out of my ass and already uh, driving coffee nails, and so that's where sort of the Celtics. But, like, can they? is that something that, you know, in your experience, teams have improved without personnel changes?
4: Well, I think before we go any further, we should note that it's possible Jason Tatum is just doing sort of a Kobe tribute by shooting 24% in the fourth quarter. That that might be just an homage to his hero uh, in this series. Um, yeah, but, I, I mean, as far as, as the way that teams – improve as you know t- going from turnover prone to kind of more cautious it's it's it is difficult to see that happen with i mean young guys can get better at that over time but it's not like smart is 22 in his third year in the league like you kind of you are a leopard has its his spots uh, at a certain point um they you no know, you know ime udoka has talked a lot about like it's kind of just about how we space and if we space then our driving kick uh, our driving lanes are great our driving kick game is great we generate beautiful shots but like it's uh, you wonder if maybe in the second year of his sort of offensive system saying we really have to pay much more attention to the way that we don't like cut into a drive or we don't mess up and sort of clutter the paint uh, that could kind of decongest things even more when they, I mean, when they play more like four out or five out, whether it's just Al Horford with four wings or just Robert Williams with four wings, that really opens things up too. And a lot of those driving lanes are much cleaner. So the, the reads are a lot simpler. I think some of it is, Tatum and Brown are going to, as they, you know, this is their first real, the first trip to the finals. They're going to learn how to make some of those reads a little more more cleanly, but it might need, need, instead of two bigs all the time, which has been their defensive identity, four wings and one big, which then sort of creates some different uh, different alignments. Uh, Yeah, I mean, all of which to say, it's not going to get better like right away. So they have to do a much better job of staying clean in the next game if they want to even have a chance to go to seven. And then we can worry about tomorrow, tomorrow.
5: Yeah,
3: it's, it's an absolutely like perplexing Celtics team that on the other one hand is historically great when you look at the underlying numbers post-January. And on the other hand, you know, it took seven games to beat a Miami team that they probably should have beaten in six. Um, struggled against the Bucks team without its second best player. Um, is this kind of... Just who this Celtics team is, you know, like an incredible defensive juggernaut that is just going to boggle your mind on offense. And I guess to your other point, you know, like this Tatum is 24, young team, Emilio first year, but, you know, we all thought O.K.C., okay, we'd go to five finals. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I, if I'm a Celtics fan, I kind of, I would be anxious for that improvement right now. It's not really a question, more just an observation and a, and a willingness to tap into the fears of Celtics fans and even as fuel for my uh, personal journey in my life. <laughs>
4: I appreciate that. Yeah, we, we all need our batteries. And this is a pretty, so, a pretty solid one, the, using the anxiety, drawing off it like the matrix. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's exactly, it's, it's a real concern. You know, you talk about like the Celtics have been a bad crunch time team all year, like all season long. They've been awful on offense and crunch time. Uh, I believe it was the, the fifth worst cr- uh, clutch time offensive efficiency all throughout the regular season, even worse in the postseason. Um, And it's a, it's a function of, like you said, if the bailout option is okay, Tatum go to your like turnaround fa- uh, mid range fadeaway. Well, you're not necessarily always generating great looks on that, especially when you've got really good defenders. Like, I mean, it, the fact that Andrew Wiggins has basically just put, Tatum and Alcatraz, uh, when, once they're inside the, ha- the, the half court, has been totally insane in this series. Um, and, like, you, you need abilities to generate easier shots when you get late in the game. And I think they tend to go, because a lot of their, of their the, the dry, that sort of drive and kick creation is just, like, spread it out, ISO one-on-one, somebody beats somebody off the dribble, tr- collapse the defense and kick... That's a lot harder to do when it's like a loaded up defense at the end of a game. And when you've got a really good one-on-one defender on your best creators. So like, if it's not smart doing that against like your third best perimeter defender, which he can do, but like, do you trust that if you're Boston? I think that's been the kind of like the push and pull when they get really good games from him or when he's able to get downhill and, and sort of create in that way. It makes him so much tougher to guard. But then, like, if he tries to post up Steph and then, like, spins into three bodies and throws the ball away, like, all of a sudden they're off to the races. And that's kind of like uh, it's, that, that is what has been their Achilles heel all season long. It's its manifesting in this postseason and this finals in particular. But as you said, like, there is no, you know, tomorrow's not promised for any of these teams to say, like, if you don't do it now, well, this will be the beginning of a long run. Maybe. I mean, Al Horford's older. Uh, Robert Williams, his, the health has obviously been a major concern. It was a question mark. Like, when they looked at when they were going to extend him, uh, was that going to be something that they they really felt comfortable doing? Um, you know, Tatum and Brown, obviously that's a, that's a, a core and something to keep together. But like the the East is is deep and tough. I don't want to say the East is big. I don't want to invoke Mike Woodson, but like there's a lot of there there's a lot of really good teams in the East, and they might only get better. So like you need to seize this opportunity now. And uh, the fact they've kind of they had a, they got the Steph game they needed, and then they booted it, and that is like. Uh, you know, to see that. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they can't come out in game six and have a much better performance, but you got to feel like that was such a golden opportunity that you blew it uh, in game five. Uh,
3: let's say the Warriors win this, let's say in seven. Um, legacy question. We got to do it. We got to ask it. Where do you put this, where do you put this Warriors team uh, in the pantheon of great runs from dominant NBA champions? I mean, I think
4: the 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 best analog is something like the Spurs. I know that's kind of like the, the, that's kind of when Joe Lacob's goal was like, what if awesome, but for 20 years. And this would be, this would be what, uh, you know, four in uh, four in eight, four in nine. And that's like that four. Nine, and that's an, that's an incredible starting point. Uh, and to be able to say like, I think the thing that's, that, that's been most interesting to me about the discussion of the, of this individual bit of the Warriors team is like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, you see when they're struggling. Oh, they they totally should have packaged. Wiseman and uh, Moses Moody and draft picks to go get like insert third guy here it's like I I think there's like the KD development broke all of our brains where it's like well if a team is not if a team's not bulletproof and a sentinel then it's not that good it's like no no they are like this is what the Warriors were like before they were really good but it was like relying on Leandro Barbosa minutes in the first season of that run, right? Like the, you can be a really good team and have vulnerabilities. And then like what makes them compelling is the overcoming of that. What makes the Warriors compelling is like, can you win on a night where Steph is, you know, Oh, uh, for nine from three can Draymond green, go to the depths of hell and come back up. Uh, you know, can clay Thompson come back from two years away and hit the shots to keep them in contact in the third quarter of of a must win game. Like, the, the 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 spine of this team the the ability of this core of guys to uh you know face down these most difficult moments and then rise above it like that's the kind of stuff that's going to go down in history you will remember the shooting we will remember the game sixes for clay will remember everything that draymond yelled at everybody but like th- that's the stuff that makes this team special and that's why you know as they passed i believe it was last night they passed uh Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili for the most, uh, or second most finals wins of any trio. I think that's the legacy. I think that's the analog, that kind of core where they like, like got completely laid low and had to come all the way back up and were able to do it uh, at, at the highest level. Um, and, you know, that puts you into awfully rarefied air all the time.
3: Uh, Dan Devine? It's to catch up with you, especially uh, over a Celtics loss, a crushing, a crushing Celtics loss. Uh, I, I, I'm tempted to ask you, is it too soon to worry about Jason Tatum, uh, you know, being uh, uh, scared of the moment, running from the grind? But, we'll, but we'll leave that for a later date. Maybe after a maybe after a devastating Celtic loss uh, that that actually puts smiles out of the reach. And it was a great thing to catch up with you. Thank you for putting up with me uh, calling you on a phone.
4: Jason, it's my pleasure. And if you excuse me, I got to go back to Ringer Slack, which is all funeral dirges right now. It's all just. Just, just sadness. It's all Morrissey songs. It's a lot happening there. So I got to hop back, hop back over there. But wonderful to catch up with you as well.
1: In the words of the PGA Tour, I'm all right. Nobody worry about me. Why you got to give me a fight, Live Can't you just let... That's right. The Saudi-backed Live Golf Invitational Series kicked off this Thursday in London with a bunch of golfers you know and then a whole bunch of golfers that you've never heard of. And there was very few commercials because sponsors don't want to touch this. And so it was an up and down uh, in terms of quality. And up and down, Live came out stronger and uh, then a lot of people were expecting. And to help us unpack everything around uh, the 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 topic that is tearing golf apart is Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal. Andrew, uh, you've been following this closely. Uh, thanks for joining us.
5: No problem. It was a pretty strange week out, out in uh, London for this.
1: So, um, it catch us up with what live is before we delve into the kind of nuts and bolts of. of of what we saw last weekend.
5: So just to to catch you up, Live Golf, Upstart Golf Tour, that's offering gobs and gobs of money to try and attract some of the game's biggest stars. The only uh, problem just happens to be where, for some people, where that money happens to be coming from, which is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. Aha.
1: Saudi Arabia, who... Uh, numerous human rights abuses. We can go on and on. Uh, uh, homosexuality, a crime. These are all things, you know, the internal uh, things uh, for the Saudi nation and their own culture. But like when you uh, when you become involved with them uh, internationally on a scale such as the golfers who have joined this, uh, you now have to answer questions as to your uh, association with the Saudi Wealth Fund. Also, they, uh, uh, you know, they... Uh, involvement at the highest levels of the saudi government with the uh the murder and uh dismemberment of a of a washington post reporter small things uh, to answer for if you're a golfer so um what is why 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 do this what 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 is the point of live even existing
5: you know it depends who you ask to they You know, Liv says they want to grow the game, they want to introduce new, fun, quirky new formats. Um, But to a lot of people, there's this pretty new term of sports washing. And that's what some, and that's what some people believe this to be. And that's the idea that in order to burnish its global image, which is obviously controversial, troubled, so on and so forth, depending on your perspective, um, that they Get a, they may see a global halo effect by being able to associate themselves with the likes of incredibly popular people like Phil Mickelson or Dustin Johnson.
1: <laughs> uh, 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 so you mentioned Phil and, and Dustin. Uh, I think clearly the the two marquee names, along with Bryson DeChambeau and um, some others, Sergio Garcia. For the most part, the, the, the marquee names who have joined Liv have been um, guys like Sergio who have even Phil who um, are kind of past past their prime, so to speak that you know there there are a few um, uh, counter examples of that, but can you give us give us an idea of the the price tag associated with bringing these players over to live
5: so the reports out there for a guy like Dustin Johnson or Phil Nicholson it has been that they're getting a nine-figure payday for this. Um, you know, Phil Mickelson was asked, you know, did you get $200 million? He said he doesn't want to get into contractual details because he thinks they should be private. So that's not a confirm or a deny, but it's clear huge money. And the players don't really shy away from this. You know, Phil Mickelson at his press conference Monday at the U.S. Open, he's when he was asked, you know, why are you playing this? He began his answer by saying, you know, there's a incredible financial commitment. I mean, it's money that that is ultimately attracting them, and they can also earn far more money in any of these tournaments than they can right now on the PGA Tour. I mean, this tournament in London or just outside of London had a purse of twenty five million dollars. That's a lot of money.
1: That is a tremendous amount of money. Now, the PGA Tour has responded by. Uh by suspending the players uh, involved who have, who have decamped to live. They can't do that with, uh, with a player like Phil who has a lifetime uh, membership essentially because of his standing as a, as a, as a golfer, is that correct? So they can't like pull his membership in the PGA.
5: I mean, that's a fight that I think we're going to see play out because they suspended him. Their memo suspending the 17 players included Phil Mickelson um, several other players resigned their memberships. Dustin Johnson resigned from the PGA Tour. Um, but Phil Mickelson, he did not. And he says, I don't think I should have to because I, I've earned my status as a lifetime member. And so that's actually a fight that we're probably seemingly going to see play out in the coming days, weeks, and months because he thinks he shouldn't be able to get bang for this.
1: This is fascinating. So let, let's zoom out for a second. Obviously, um, uh, we are watching uh, the global economy kind of shudder under the weight of of uh, various uh, pieces of massive baggage that it's carrying, including the the war in Ukraine, the ongoing uh, disruption of the supply chain from COVID nineteen, et cetera, et cetera. When Joe Biden came in, uh, uh, began his run as president, he he was quite outspoken about, you know wanting to uh, punish Saudi Arabia for, and other things, among other things, like the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the reporter Jamal Khashoggi. That has since gone away with uh, uh, seemingly normalized diplomatic relations uh, uh, flowing again between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Clearly, like, the fact that gas costs so much fucking money gives them tremendous leverage. It feels as if, you know, for all the talk about sports washing, Live is just one piece of a much larger global campaign to you know uh burnish the reputation of the kingdom abroad. Would you say that that is accurate?
5: Yeah, I mean there are too many different cogs on this wheel to unpack in even a short or a long conversation, but I think the one thing that stands out to everybody as being different with live golf than all those other factors is yes the Saudi Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund throws around a lot of money there's a lot of businesses that are intertwined with it um but this is a situation where it doesn't appear to be about doing business you know they this is a situation where a lot of people see sports as different because you know if you invest in a company you're not getting some reputational boost by doing that. It's a business transaction. Whereas when you are throwing around tremendously large stacks of cash to associate with professional golfers, you know that is something that people could look at and say, "Oh, this might be just to really. This isn't business. It's to change image, to change reputation of a country that you know might be interested in doing that."
1: It 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 seemed in recent weeks and months um, as Live got closer and closer to debuting. You know, it was on again, off again, seeming like it wasn't going to go. You had multiple people who are now involved with Live, uh, you know, saying, "Oh, I'm not sure what's going to happen with it." Now all of a sudden, it's launched. What are what are its? You know, obviously, incredibly early in the in the in the lifespan of this endeavor. But does it have staying power? Do, do you think without? without the connection to, like, to the major tournaments that uh, have the kind of like name recognition that even people who aren't fans of golf understand, without an ability to hook into those things, what kind of staying power can Live really have? And what, can the, what kind of like long-term career do we think that golfers who are involved with it can, can expect?
5: So I think it's been fascinating to watch this progression because you have not long ago in February, Rory McIlroy, calls this thing dead in the water. And I think he, was, he wasn't out on a limb when he was saying that. I think after Nicholson's controversial comments, everyone was looking at this and saying, you know, who would really go risk their careers, go play here. And so then it started to become clear that, like, you know, the, the golfers you were mentioning earlier, the guys who might be towards the end of their careers and might be looking to chase a payday that's not necessarily available to them, like the, the Lee Westwoods, the Ian Poulters, that they might go. But still, I mean, listen, is anybody tuning in to a golf broadcast these days to watch them? Probably not so much. Um, and so then the big bombshell comes and it's Dustin Johnson. And when he says that he's playing in this, that really seems to change the game both for Liv, but also when you start thinking about its long-term future, which is what you're asking about, because you have guys and some pretty big names lined up to play not just this first event or the one that's going to be next in Portland, or, you know, when there's one at Trump Bedminster, you have guys who are clearly linking onto this for the long haul, because they knew that the PGA tour is going to suspend them. The PGA tour hadn't really been subtle about that. And they're joining to play a long time because there's a lot of money in it for them. And so the staying power is, I mean, it's impossible to predict three, five, 10 years, but I think What's been made clear over the last couple of weeks is this is going to be a thing for a little while now. You have Dustin Johnson and then Phil playing there and then guys like Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Reed. You know, these are big name golfers that they've gotten commitments from. They don't have any of the top 10 golfers in the world still, but they've got guys on the wagon for some time now.
1: You mentioned Phil's uh, controversial comments. Those were—I'm going to paraphrase now because they really are so so funny to think about. He uh, he was asked about his uh, his relationship with Liv, What's going on with it? He said something to the effect of, "Hey man, the Saudis are really scary. They beheaded Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, they kill. They execute homosexual uh, people over there. But you know what? The money is fucking amazing, folks. Like it's pretty great." and uh and also you know i have a gambling problem that's a different sorry now i'm now i'm squeezing on a different uh comment from more recently but he you know he was recently asked again about it he's like, yeah i've got gambling problem i need the money um what are the it seems as if for people like dustin for bryson the idea is make you know the money I would have made in my whole career in these next couple of years, and then we'll let we'll see what happens as as it plays out. Um, but for guys like Phil and Sergio, Greg Norman, even it's almost like man, it, it makes you have to look inside yourself and wonder what's my price tag. Have you wondered that, Andrew? What's your what's your inside yourself? What's your personal price tag to just be like fuck it? Uh, I will I will take that money and and just. Get into business with terrible people. I'll do it. Fine.
5: You know, I, I'd like to think that I ended up being a reporter because I hopefully don't have too high of a price tag, or don't have a price tag. Excuse me. But I think that's the, the the overarching question, right? There's this idea that these guys are making sums of money and then huge sums of money, and then having to basically apologize for them for winning that much money.
1: I mean, some of the questions that they're being asked are, you know are truly insane at the and and they are absolutely fair i you know i saw one uh reporter asking you know would you you know would you play you know would you play uh for a tournament that was uh that vladimir putin had like thrown like would you do stuff like and you know like various golfers would have to say oh i'm not going to get into hypotheticals but these are the kind of questions that people are being asked because of this
5: yeah i mean i think one was asked if you'd play in apartheid south africa um, I mean, that's that's where we are with this. And it sounds absolutely crazy, but there's you're asking, what's your price tag? I guess another way of looking at the same problem is where do you draw the line? I mean, you have um, 9-11 victims families calling out these golfers. So these are aren't just important questions. They're like really uncomfortable ones, all painted against the backdrop of Charles Schwartzel, who won the first Live event, he'll you know go down in history for winning the first Live event. Congratulations to him. Um, but he won more than $4 million for winning this golf tournament, which is a huge, huge amount of money. And then you win that much money, and then you get asked afterwards, how do you feel about it, knowing where that money came from?
1: The PGA Tour, the suspensions, came with a kind of a, a tone of... Uh... Not necessarily pettiness, but it seemed like the PGA was a little caught off guard with what to do, maybe what their response might be. Do you just in your reporting, do you have what's your what's what's the like what is the tenor of of anxiety right now around the PGA tour and the shot
5: callers there? Are they are they concerned? I mean, I think they've been concerned about it for a while. I mean, it's clear that they see it. As a threat, because there's times when the PGA Tour grants waivers to players to play in non-PGA Tour events. Happens somewhat normally, can happen a few times a year for each guy. Um, They didn't grant the waivers for this event, because this isn't just seen as a one-off where a guy can go collect an appearance fee. They see this as a threat to the PGA Tour and someone trying to start a rival golf league. And the, the anxiety has to be real, right? Because... Even after this first tournament kicks off, then it continues with more names getting added on for the next one, DeChambeau and Reed being two of the big ones. And so they can look at their ranks right now and know that they still have the best golfers in the world. The fields aren't close. The PGA Tour players are still leaps and bounds way better. But the reality is that money is attracting guys and maybe that stops maybe we've seen the guys who are going to go but maybe it's just the beginning and i think you know this feels like the the beginning of a golf war
1: who would have thought it a war in golf uh he is andrew beaton sports reporter for the wall street journal andrew thanks a lot for for joining us my mom's gonna love this segment That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out.